Good morning, and thank you so much for uh, being here today and taking an interest in this uh, substantial uh, American concern. I want to introduce someone else here today, a friend of mine, Sean Parnell, retired U.S. Army captain. Um, he was with the 10th Mountain Division, 287th. His unit was in Afghanistan for 485 continuous days of combat. It took about 80% casualties, which I understand is the most of any unit probably since the Civil War. Um, he wrote a book about it called Outlaw Platoon, Heroes, Renegades, Infidels, and the Brotherhood of War in Afghanistan. And if you want to understand about issues of uh, what it's like if you've not served, even if you have served, to see his insights, I highly recommend his bestseller book to you, Outlaw Platoon. Thank you so much for being here today, Sean. Thank you. Uh, let me also then talk a little bit about uh, a couple concerns to set this off, but we really want to hear today also from uh, Sam Bees and Jeff McDowell. But in my work at Walter Reed, where I work on a PTSD TBI unit, it is uh, an area where certainly Americans are concerned about PTSD and what this is all about. But we have to remember a number of very important things about this. First of all, let's look at why people join the military. They use it because they want to serve their country, many motivated after 9-11. They do it to build themselves up in terms of personal fitness, give themselves a uh, direction in life, uh, a change for the better, uh, perhaps they heard that distant bugle call them to service, but uh, also to learn other things about jobs and to, uh, to leave their problems behind at times. But with those aspects, having served in the military, all will become, in one way or another, better, faster, stronger, and it will give their life a fuller meaning. Uh, when you are facing dangers and risks, that is the strength you can take out of that. And the vast majority of people who serve that's what comes out of that. And so it is always important for those of you involved in employment or with your business to understand that, that in hiring a veteran, uh, you get someone who really has going to contribute a lot to teamwork. But also an aspect of that, they learn that they can push themselves farther, faster, harder, and stronger than they ever believed possible. Even when it might be someone like a gunny sergeant uh, chewing them out uh, in the face, or when you're in officer school, you don't have that. We just had some other chiefs yelling us all day. It's kind of nice to be there and outrank your you know, trainer by several levels, but still have them remind you of uh, how to do the best push-up in the beach as they have it down there. <clears throat> it's amazing what you can do with your feet on the sand and your hands in the water, cold water. Uh, and, it, and it teaches you real quick to do it the first time right. But what we're also concerned about here is what we can do to turn around uh, aspects of PTSD. Just let me leave you with this brief part here. In addition to my work at Walter Reed, the last couple summers I've had an opportunity to do my active duty training time at Navy Special Warfare Coronado with the SEAL teams. And whereas much of my work is helping people move from here to more um, uh, normal function and, and adaptive functioning, the SEALs are out here and they want to move farther out in terms of pushing themselves even farther than any of us can imagine. And what they do, it is not just a matter of their fitness that leaves them with such a very, very low PTSD rate, but it's the mental fitness they practice. And these are the four principles that they really push. And that is always set a goal, set your target, understand where you're going to go and keep that target in mind, refine it and build on it constantly. Second thing is you have to be going through mental rehearsal. A lot of us will remember our failures in our day, our frustrations. We tell the stories of people who annoyed us during the day. We keep ourselves going with that. We play that videotape over and over and over and over again till we actually imprint on our own brains 
And if we've been through trauma, this is what actually happens too. And those animal portions of our brain, our central brain, our amygdala, uh, we'll, we'll keep that in there. And that is the core of what happens so often with PTSD. The trauma and terror gets imprinted in those parts of the brain. But you can also change that and do mental rehearsal on another level. And much of what happens in our work with people who have uh, been through uh, combat stress, whether it is that campfire discussion in the debriefing after the battle, or it's something that takes place years later, it's the mental rehearsal of the positive aspects, to go through it and to understand the successes and the positive things you've taken from that. The third step is also the self-talk. We uh, can engage in a lot of pretty nasty self-talk and convince ourselves of failure. But when you hear SEAL teams and others, it's written above uh, the doorway in one part of Coronado, the only easy day was yesterday. Or you may have seen sometimes on t-shirts, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Or the, sta the statement of, do you know how they, tr uh, how they stress test steel? They put it under lots of fire and it gets stronger. Pain is weakness leaving the body. I can, I will, I do, I did. And uh, my favorite saying from Yoda, there is no try, just do or do not. <laughs> Even Yoda has, you know, you have to learn from the Jedi now. So. <laughs> but it's practicing this with positive self-talk that is also key to help people overcome uh, these problems. And that fourth aspect is what they call arousal control, and that is getting very good understanding of your heart rate, your respiration, those things in your autonomic system that can uh, send you into the fight, flight, or fright uh, phenomena, or freeze, I should say, uh, phenomena. And when someone is caught up more in the freeze or the fright, it can impair their functioning. But whatever we do as a nation, uh, the encouragement we give to our veterans and the work that's done to help them at uh, Walter Reed and other hospitals is key for them. We'll hear some stories about this today in terms of strength that can come from those elements too. So I thank you for being here. Uh, there is a lot of success happening in this area of, of dealing with PTSD. You're going to hear some, from some great people on this today. But now let me turn it over to my friend and colleague, um, Marine Corps Beth Duncan Hunter. Thanks, Tim. It's always always makes me smile when uh, Navy guy starts talking about working out and stuff. It's cute. But <laughs> <laughs> we had some people that told us how to do push-ups and stuff. It's I know it's tough, Tim. It's tough. You know, I, I stayed in to become a, a major in the reserves just so I could have the same rank as Murphy. That, that's the only reason I stayed in. Tim. But uh, I I got out about six or seven months ago. Finally realized there was no way to do Marine Corps stuff and do Congress stuff at the same time. There's just too much to do and. The Marine Corps makes it a little bit difficult, let's say, to stay in the reserves compared to some of the other branches where you can go to the uh, Pentagon and watch some UAV feed for two hours here in the Navy or the Army, and boom, that's all you need to do for that month. But that, that's okay. That's okay. I don't get everybody's going to get that, except for the Marines. I got a gunny over here, so it's okay. I, don't, I can say whatever I want to. Um, you know, I, I want to talk about one thing really quick, and that's I, I just got back from. You know, we go to Afghanistan and go overseas all the time. And this this last trip, it was me and a bunch of Democrats, good good good, good uh, people all. And we're we're sitting around. We're talking to we're talking to the three star in charge of the entire Af Af Afghanistan, everything, and, and the joint operations under General Dunford. And one of the new freshman Democrats raises his hand. He has a question, and he says, "You know, my constituents, General, my constituents are war weary." And I said, "Time out." Let's just think about this, because we hear this all the time. You hear congressmen talk about how, how their people are war-weary, and the people of America are war-weary. 
You hear it on the news all the time and on all the different all the different medias. Americans are tired of of conflict. I'll tell you who's tired of conflict: the people whose backs the conflict has been rested on since 9/11. The guys that have two, three, seven, eight, or nine tours since 2001. That's who's war weary, and, and that's who when when we look to Syria or we look to future conflicts. It's not the American people that have given anything to this war. Anything. And I want you to realize that. The American people have been asked to give nothing, nothing to this war. Not their sons, not their brothers or fathers, not, their, not a special tax. Nothing has changed for the American people. But the less than 1% of the population who decided to serve. And, and those are the folks, when, when we look at Congress even today, you see you have fewer veterans in Congress than we've ever had before. Now, does a, a veteran make a better congressman? No, not necessarily. But it, but it's one of those perspectives that is good to have in government, especially when you're doing when when you're looking at issues like Syria, when you're looking at issues like Israel, when you're looking at at, at issues where America may have to send force and send send our sons and daughters into harm's way. It's good to have the perspective of people that have lived that uh, life and fought that fight, and and that is a very small percentage of the population. And and I think we need to, to recognize that and realize that what we need to do is try to share in those people's experiences and, and talk to them and try to understand what that less than 1% of the population has gone through. Because part of the problem with PTSD and, 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 and brain injuries like that is that these, these kids can't share it with anybody except each other. Because they go home, they go back to, to Nebraska or Oklahoma or Texas or the Southeast and they, they have friends there, but it's hard for them if they can't find other people that they've served with, it, it's hard for them to really feel like they're back at home with their buddies. You know, I realized my, my grandfather was a World War II Marine. He had Guadalcanal, Leyte Gulf. He was an, an artillery officer. Um, and and I, I realized I was about 12 or 13 years old. I was at his house, and I was going through his uh, his covers one night. We were staying at his house, my, my uh, dad and I were. And he had whiskey there. He, he had some whiskey in, in his cupboard. And I asked my dad, I said, hey, you know, Grandpa Bob, I didn't know he, he uh, drank it all. And dad goes, yeah, after World War II, he drinks every night. And then this was uh, this was 20 years ago. He's, he's since passed away. But that was that was one of the ways that he dealt with what he saw. And, and I have have buddies who who come back and I talked to them. One of my buddies just got back. One of my very best friends from his sixth tour. And uh, and I talked to him and I say, How you doing, man? He goes, I'm going to go for about a few months here of, of my downtime, which involves heavy drinking and uh, carousing and and kind of chilling out and getting back in the world again. And then I'll be good. And, and that's, how, that's how he's dealing with, with, what he's, with, with his sticker shock after coming back and being back in the world again and seeing nice people and nice clothes and nice cars and all the different choices that he has on, on the menu. People have different ways to, to, uh, to cope with that. But I think that the, one of the biggest things we can do besides giving to great organizations like Patricia's is, is try to understand and try to be a part of, of, that, of that small, less than 1% that serve. And I'll tell you, I don't know what the percentage of folks is who saw combat but it's probably 0.1% of the 1%. It's even fewer people. And, and for, for those kids to not to be able to share their experiences with people that at least just say thanks and I understand, I, I think that's where we get into trouble. Uh, number two, you know, back in World War II in Vietnam, you kind of had a, a different scenario in, in the United States. Let's just say things were not as cushy as they are now. Things are pretty cushy here now. Even if you're on, on welfare, you have air conditioner, you, you, have, a, you have a cable TV, probably have a car. It's not a bad life. It takes a lot to want to leave that and, and go say and, and say to yourself, I'm gonna go punish myself physically 
and mentally and emotionally, and I, I'm going to go join the service. I still think, you know, I would argue now that this, that this generation that joined for these wars is just as great as the last generation that got drafted to go to war, because these kids didn't get drafted. They all volunteered, and, and there's even more now volunteering that, that we can handle. So while, so while we, we complain and we talk about the future generations of this country and how bad things are, you know, realize you still have kids volunteering every day that believe in this nation, believe in what it stands for, and believe that it's, it's worth doing something for. It's a nation worth protecting, and we're lucky that we have people who still want to protect it. And, uh, and we need to take care of them. That's why we do everything we can for the Armed Forces Foundation, for, for uh, Patricia and Kurt, and what, what they do for our soldiers and uh, Marines is just great. The, the way that they way that they take care of them, the way that they're learning and pushing the envelope with guys like Dr. Murphy learning about PTSD, what it does, how it affects kids, and what, what we can do about it to bring to bring these young men and women back into the, the uh, fold. So thank you all for what you do. And just remember, it's that 1%. We need to talk to them. We need to share with them and just let them know we understand. Because I, I hate to tell everybody, um, we're not going to be out of war anytime soon. Things aren't going to get nicer, and there's 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 no peace dividend just because we want there to be one. And I think we learned that just uh, recently with Syria. There's going to be things like that popping up all over throughout the world, and the military is going to have to be bigger, better, and stronger to deal with it, not uh, not smaller and uh, and uh, weaker. And, and everything that we can do to discover more about the brain and what makes it work and what fixes it after guys come back from combat will be saving lives. So uh, so thank you for having me. Thanks for letting me share. And let me tell you one, one, one last thing, too. I still remember um, I was at work in San Diego on 9-11. On remember the first plane hit, and I, I drove home. And because my dad was in Congress, I, I don't think he was chairman of the Armed Services Committee yet, but he was in, in Congress, and there there had been word put out. I don't know if, if you all knew this, but there was word when 9-11 happened that Congress could become targets and some other stuff, right? We, Nobody knew what was happening. We thought everybody could be under attack or just a few things. So I, I drove home and there were two cop cars in front of, of my house. My family was inside. They had them under a window. One, one uh, policeman over them. One, one cop was outside driving around uh, patrolling the area. And, and that's when it uh, hit me. I said, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to go serve. I, I think I was 23 or 20, 24 years old. I didn't tell my mom. I didn't tell my uh, wife. didn't tell my dad. didn't tell anybody. I just joined. And, uh, and I think you have a lot of kids and a, a lot of young men who, who uh, did that. No, it's not like the old days in World War II where you, where you had entire football teams leaving Harvard and joining the, the, uh, the Navy or something. But you had a great generation get up and stand up and say, hey, we're going to take this fight overseas. We're going to take it to the enemy. And we have the greatest military we've ever had because we have the best people in it that we've ever had. So thank you very much. God bless you all. Good job, Duncan. I've learned a lot from Duncan. I've learned that Marine stands for moving around in Navy equipment. <laughs> By the way, if you know about the Marines, or they have a special breed, you know, this is my rifle, there's no other knife rifle like it, etc. Duncan told me a special one uh, that all Marines uh, learn. And he thought it was important when I joined the Navy to learn this. Um, there are four rules. Look cool in sunglasses. Shoot everything within view. Adjust your speedo. <laughs> and check your hair in the rearview mirror. So those are all important things. Glad I've done those from Duncan. Let me introduce you a, a couple folks now um, uh, next in line to talk about some of their experience as well. Let me start off with Sam Deeds. Uh, Sam is a, a gunny sergeant, uh, retired uh, Marine Corps. While serving in Iraq in 2005, he discovered 
an improvised explosive device, an IED, while setting up a vehicle's checkpoint. Dee selflessly exposed himself to the device to save his fellow Marines. He was severely injured, underwent more than 30 surgeries, um, procedures following the blast. For his wounds suffered in combat, uh, Sam received the Distinguished Purple Heart Medal. Most importantly, we are glad he is here with his family to talk to us about his experience today. Please welcome uh, Gunny Sergeant Sam Beatties. Everybody says Marine Corps Department of the Navy. We are the Mesa Department. <laughs> and yes, we do ride around in Navy equipment. We like having glorified taxis. <laughs> it is cool. Um, first, I'd like to thank everybody at Furniture Row Race. Matt, you gave me the wrong speech. I have Kurt's speech for today. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, I want to thank Patricia, everybody at AFF, um, for having me out here today. Uh, Joined the Marine Corps in 1997. Nothing was going on. Two days out of high school, I'm at Paris Island, South Carolina. Not knowing what to expect. Joined the infantry. That's the thing to do. 2001, in February, I'm at MCRD San Diego, attending recruiter school. Nothing I wanted to do in life. September 11th happens, and our office is flooded. <coughs> Vietnam veterans. World War II veterans, Korean veterans. Sarge, give me a rifle. I'm ready to go. Fast forward a couple years later, 2004, I find myself in my first combat deployment. It wasn't to Iraq, and it wasn't to Afghanistan. Quote of Prince Haiti. Civil unrest going around. Um, Aristide was trying to overthrow everything and control everything in Haiti, so that's where I find myself. As a sergeant, never seen any type of combat before, trained for it my whole career, scared as hell. My first patrol, I'm closer to me and Patricia to a vehicle, and the window blows out, I'm peppered with glass from the window. Shots are being fired, don't know where they're coming from. Later found out it was a Haitian national who was trying to rob a store to get food for his family because down it's, it's terrible. Uh, what's going on down in that place. But they were shooting at the Haitian National Police and not us. A year later, I found myself in Iraq. Made a conscious decision to go back and warn two of my Marines of an explosive device. They cleared the danger area. I turned. I was peppered with shrapnel. They said 30 surgeries. That was before I got out of the Marine Corps. I'm up to over 40 now. I had six procedures from the Monday after Thanksgiving to March of this year. And the doctor is saying that the procedure is going to last six months to two years, and I'm going to have to repeat it. If it continues to happen, I'm going to have to see a liver transplant specialist to do issues with my bile ducts. No one saw those until two years later when I came back. All my internal organs were gelled together. Gallbladder issues, they take it out cut my bile ducts too high, emergency surgery to UNC Chapel Hill. First surgery, seven hours. That was one of my many surgeries. But that's not what haunted me the most.
laying in bed one night. My two-year-old opens my bedroom door. I come out of bed with a knife. Having flashbacks, nightmares. If my dog would not have bit my arm, I probably would have killed my son. This continued to go on until last year. And my wife says, you need to do something or we're leaving. It wasn't drinking. It wasn't drugs. It wasn't severe depression. It was extreme anger. I always held everything in and didn't tell my story. Marine Corps says, Gunner, you have to leave the infantry. That's all I'd known for nine years. What am I going to do? I go over and work on the V-22 Osprey, the greatest aircraft that our military has. It had issues. If this thing would have been operational at the beginning of the war, a lot more lives would have been saved. A lot more limbs would have been saved. You can't control the things you see. Nobody can prepare you. No amount of training can prepare you for the things that you see in combat and the things you experience. The first time you have to send one of your Marines home for making the decision. When you get sent home for making that decision and leaving your Marines behind, hoping that you train them to the best of your abilities, it weighs on you. It really does. I go over to the, to the air wing and I find out a couple of my Marines get injured on their second tour to Iraq in Ramadi and they're at Windward Battalion East at Camp Lejeune. I go over there and talk to them and they're like, Gunny, I'm, I'm having problems. I talk to them, I listen to their story. I don't tell mine to anybody. I open up to them and it makes me feel better. I became great friends with a guy who is my son's godfather, and our goal in life is to attend every racetrack that NASCAR has to offer. Unfortunately, for the next three years, he's stationed in Okinawa, Japan, so we have to put that mission on hold for us. But when you're traveling to Richmond, or Darlington, or Charlotte, or Dover, you can only listen to the radio so long. You can only talk about Michigan and Ohio State for so long. So I started to open up to him. I started to feel better. Now I tell my story to anybody who will listen. I say my story. It's not a story. It's my life. I lived it. I have to continue to live it. My wife says, you got to do something or I'm gone. So we are currently doing therapy at the VA in Cincinnati. And it is helping tremendously. I still have my anger outbursts. My wife hates driving me in the car. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's not just the road rage. Um, when, when I first got back, every time I went under an overpass, I'm clenching my fist and closing my eyes, driving 80 miles an hour to go under the overpass. A deer carcass, a box on the side of the road, because that's what these guys are using for IEDs. They're using MRE bags to hide, MR, to hide IEDs. Things that we use on a daily basis, they're using against us. They're dressing up as women because they know as combatants we cannot shoot women and children. But they're using these against us, just like they did during Vietnam. A lot of young kids, 18, 17, 19 year old, are seeing these. These are some of the problems that they're having. These are the problems that I'm having. Bringing awareness is one thing, but we need support. We need help.
For so long, I held it in. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm a Marine Gunnery Sergeant. There's nothing wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. And I can't control it. And it scares me. I have two kids to live for. And that's probably the only reason that I'm here today. Because of them. Because of my wife. And her support. And her being stronger than me. Thank you all for your time. Story of courage, uh, continued courage under fire. But uh, Sam was nice to hear the uh, laughter and playfulness of your son uh, as it's going on. Thank you. God bless. Now let me introduce Jeff McDonald. Jeff is a high school teacher from Fairmont, Georgia. His son, U.S. Marine Corps Sergeant Christopher McDonald, served with the Chattanooga-based Mike Battery in the Marine Corps Reserves and was activated in Central Rack in 2008. Jeff, who also served in the Marine Corps Reserve, was activated for Desert Storm. But Jeff is not here to discuss his own service, but to talk about something much more tragic. In March of 2012, Jeff's wife and Chris's mom, Paige, had come home to find that Christopher had taken his life. Chris was 25. Together with his wife, Paige, they are committed to raising the awareness on the efforts of PTSD and the effect it has on our soldiers. As it's gentlemen, please welcome Jeff McDonald. Wow, I've not been around this much intelligence since I had my freshman group for a drafting class. <laughs> no, I really do. I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, and let me come and tell you a story about Chris, okay? Um, people, when you hear suicide, first thing you hear, you know, this person's a loser. You know, my son was, was exactly opposite of that. He was the most aggressive young man that, 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 that I know of, okay? And I've taught high school for 29 years, and I've seen a lot of young men. And uh, Chris is right there with the best of them. Um, as a young child, I noticed Chris had a lot of qualities. He, had, um, he was a great athlete, played baseball, football. Uh, he had a natural leadership ability. He always uh, was the first at everything he had to do. And uh, you know, I saw the potential there as a leader, and, and me being the Marine Corps myself, obviously, you know, got to got to pass on the gene. So I was really excited when Chris came to me and said, you know, Dad, I'm thinking about joining the Marine Corps. And I said, Great, you know, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm who I am today because of the Marine Corps. And uh, he joined the same unit I I was in, Mike Battery, uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I was activated for Desert Storm, and um, he. You know, he came out, never forget that he came in and said, Dad, we're getting activated, we're going overseas. I went, okay, well, you'll be all right. I was all right, so no big deal. But it was weird in the airport, because when I left in the airport, uh, Chris was four years old, and we were sitting in the terminal, and it real quiet, a lot of small talk going on, and uh, said goodbye to Mom and Dad, and on down the line, said goodbye to everybody, and I got to Chris, and I picked him up, and I, I said, Chris, listen, you've got to be a man now. You know, you got to grow up. You got to help your mom. You got to. Uh, and my wife is pregnant with our youngest, 
And I said, you got to help Brooke when she when she's born. You got to help her out. You got to help everybody. Got to be a man, okay? And he did that. I mean, he went in and helped mom do everything. She was pregnant by herself, uh, closest relatives, thirty miles away. Um, you know, she she did a lot. And Chris was there to help. So, and I also remember before that we started watching the news, and when Saddam first invaded Kuwait, Chris and I were sitting on the couch. And he started asking these questions, and, and it was, uh, you know, Dad, what's war? You know, how do you how do you describe war to a four-year-old child? And you know, I tried not to say, you know, people actually end up dying because I knew he was worried to death about it. But he came up and asked me that question. He said, Dad, does people die during war? And I said, Yeah, they do. And he said, well, Are you going to die? And you know, I, it kind of caught me off guard, and I said, I don't think so, but uh, you know, I think I'll be okay. So I remember that conversation when he was leaving, and he was getting on the bus in, in uh, Chattanooga, and I remember sitting down having a conversation, and you got to be a man now, and you got to help out, and you know, there my son is, you know, he's leaving to go overseas to do what his dad did. And Chris was the fifth generation veteran in our family. The McDonald's have served in nearly every conflict this country's had, all the way from the Revolutionary War, all the way until today. So. We're real proud of that fact. So anyway, he goes overseas. We talk, uh, you know, every once in a while. When I was over there, it was two weeks, two weeks before he got a letter. You know, he would call on the phone, and, and it was immediate. So I thought that was rather odd. But um, I noticed when Chris came back, he was he was totally different. He his whole demeanor, everything had changed. Chris was the life of the party, just like his old man. Yeah, we, we like having fun around our house. And Chris was always the one there, um, you know, getting in trouble and, and making people laugh. But that was gone. Uh, my son was a, a complete different person. He he was, uh, it's hard to explain, but he was in a shell. So we went one day to the rifle range, and we, we like to shoot around our house. So we went to the rifle range, and we shot all day. And we were coming home, and... This is the first time he had actually talked to me about his experiences over there. So he starts telling me everything that happened. It was some pretty rough stuff. And um, I noticed, as I was driving, I noticed when we left the rifle range, he was sitting upright and, and in one position. But when he started talking about what happened over there, he was physically drawn down and into like a semi-fetal position when he was, when he was telling me about it. And uh, like I say, it, it was pretty rough. And and he said, Dad, I can't talk to anybody about this. You, know, I, you can't talk, go talk to a psychiatrist who has not been in that situation. They do not understand what we're trying to tell them. And me, I've been in combat myself, and, and I could talk to him some, but it was still a father-son. You know, it wasn't a doctor-patient. So we, we returned home, and I noticed... Um, his behavior once again was changing and he had he had injured his back somehow over there and he had actually popped his his uh, pelvis or something he popped a muscle or bone or something in his pelvis well the VA automatically gives him hydrocodone 128 a month okay and um, you know Chris is taking these things well after about four months he goes back to the VA and they figured out that his hip was out of place so they rolled him over the table popped it back in place and he's good to go, but he's hooked. He's hooked on hydrocodone. And it got worse because he, I didn't know it at the time, but he was taking 12 hydrocodone at a time and functioning. 
I mean, going to work, functioning, doing a normal, I guess you could say, a normal life activity. But um, it kept getting worse and worse, and then later I found, I found out he had actually been doing some heroin. And I know what it was. I know he was trying to, to get that out of his head. Young, I know exactly after talking to you, I know what, I know what he was going through, okay? Well, as a parent, that's the hardest thing in, in the world to do because he was stealing. He had my social security number. He was stealing from me. He was stealing from his mom. Uh, my daughter had a, a friend over one time while they were in watching television. He actually took her debit cards, went and filled up his tank and came back and put it back in her purse. Uh, and my, my wife finally called him breaking into her purse, so we kicked him out of the house. And now looking back on it, you know, I don't know if that was the best move in the world, but at the time, that's all we need to do. Okay, so he had gone to the Veterans Administration. He had told these guys, listen, I have a problem. I have an addiction. I need help. He went to Chattanooga, and they said, your case is not severe enough. He went to uh, Atlanta, and, you know, your case is not severe enough. And I remember him telling me that one of the doctors had told him that they had stopped they stopped the inpatient treatment in-house and they were farming it out to, uh, to local businesses and stuff. But he still could not get help. So my wife and I, being parents that we are, we're trying to find him some kind of help. And we look and we look and we're talking anywhere from $1,100 a month to $5,000 a month. And I'm a school teacher. My wife sells carpet. You know, we, there's no way that we could afford anything like that. So as a parent, you know, you're, you're just torn to pieces because you want to help your son, but you don't know what to do. You know, we had nowhere to turn to, nowhere. We didn't know about the Armed Forces Foundation. We didn't know anybody to turn to. And we finally found a, uh, a Christian organization, Teen Challenge in Chattanooga, that would take him for a year. And uh, he had to go and, and stay there a year and then come out and they wouldn't charge us anything. But I do remember in that same conversation coming back from the rifle range that day, Chris looked right at me and he said, uh, he said, Dad, you know, there's not a God. I, you know, I kind of shook and I said, what are you talking about? He said, there is no way a God would let what goes on over there happen. There's no way. So, you know, that caught, that caught me off guard too. Uh, but then I thought, well, that's probably some of the PTSD or something like that. So I didn't really think that was important. And then after we found the Teen Challenge, which was Christian-based, uh, he came down the shop one day. Um, I was out there working, and um, he said, Dad, you know, I'm really worried about going to this, to this Teen Challenge because you know, they're going to push God on you. I said, well, you know, son, listen, that's the only thing we have. You know, we don't have a choice in this. You know, just just do the best you can, and you know, let's get you let's get you taken care of and get you home. And he was supposed to go on a Friday morning at lunch, and I was out of school that day, going back to rifle range to, to shoot with some friends, and Chris was on the couch asleep. And uh, as I was brushing my teeth, I was getting ready to leave. He woke up, and I said, you know, I thought you were supposed to leave this morning. He said, no, Dad, I'm leaving at lunch. And I said, okay. Well, I noticed he had this look on his face. It, it, was, it, it was almost demonic. Uh, his eyes were real dark, and I know this sounds crazy, but I'm t I saw it with my own eyes, okay? And I walked out of the house, and that's the last time I saw my son alive. Um, 
my wife came home at lunch to pick him up and he had uh, gone into the bathroom. He had covered himself up with a blanket and he shot himself in the left side of the head, knowing that he would bleed out in the bathtub and that it wouldn't cause you know such a mess. So he had planned this at one point. He had planned this thing out and not told anybody about it. All right, so, you know, it, that to me, that was the most devastating day of my life. I drove home and I saw the cop cars there, and I knew when I saw the cop cars in the front yard, I knew what it was. I knew what he had done. Nobody had to tell me. And uh, my wife found him, which, um, you know, that, that, that's a shame within itself, but it, that's better than my daughter. She was the next one for you to come home. But, um, you know, all the way through the whole, the, the whole funeral and the whole situation, you know, I was angry. And I was like, you know, why did you do this? Why, how, you know, why could you do this to us? But after I've gone through it and after I've, I've thought about everything and looked at everything, um, you go from being mad to you miss your son. You know, and, I, and every time I see his picture, I could be driving home from work to see something remind me of him. You know, he's gone. He, there is no tomorrow for him. And it, it just breaks my heart that I did not know about an organization that could have possibly saved his life. And that's what the Armed Forces Foundation, if I'd known about them, my son would probably be alive today. But I did not know. You know, but the word has got to get out. You, know, you guys are lawmakers. Y'all are the ones who can get this thing done. Y'all have got to help these people. You know, they're not making this stuff up. You know, God knows. You know, this is real. This is life. You know, y'all are the ones that can change things. So I challenge you, you know, I challenge you, please help these veterans out. They need your help. You know, there's guys walking around with, with no physical scars, but the mental scars are just as bad. And my son was one of them. And, uh, you know, I'm gonna miss him. Um, we just had, I just had my first grandbaby, and I lost a son, and I, grand, I gained a granddaughter. So, you know, maybe God's kind of like helped me out a little bit one more time in my life. But please, please do something and let's stop this suicide. Thank you. Powerful stories uh, we've heard, but amongst us all, well, we have to continue to have hope uh, for they and other veterans and veterans' families. And one of the people in this country who's a leader in helping to deliver that is Patricia Driscoll. She serves as President and Executive Director of the Armed Forces Foundation. A few years ago, uh, she wrote a book, which I had the pleasure of reading, Hidden Battles on Unseen Fronts, Stories of American Soldiers with Traumatic Brain Injury and PTSD. It takes an intimate look into the lives of service members returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. A lot of valuable vignettes to read. And the book focuses most of its attention on, uh, on, on people with PTSD and, uh, and TV, about TBI, but from their own uh, standpoint. These little vignettes are powerful little stories. Uh, Hidden Battles, uh, published through the renowned publisher of military history at Casemate Publishing, was one of the first books published on PTSD and its effects on families. Uh, Ms. Driscoll has been a frequent contributor on Fox News, is often tapped as an expert when discussing hardship-facing military families. And I might add, uh, Patricia didn't have to do this. She's very successful in her own business and uh, does a lot of work around the world making sure that um, uh, bad guys are taken care of. 
but she does this out of a uh, real uh, love for helping our service members and uh, pretty amazing. I think 90, what, 97% of your funding goes to really help uh, veterans. Ladies and gentlemen, Patricia Driscoll. I'm a little bit shorter than everybody else who's spoken here, Duncan, especially. No short jokes today? No, no. Okay. <laughs> um, I want to thank Jim um, and the Ripon Society for having us and talking about this issue today, because I know originally um, you guys had scheduled something else, but Jim is a big believer in what we do and the changes that we've been able to make and that because it's 9-11, this was the right subject to talk about today. So I thank you all for staying, and I know that we're a little bit short on time, so I'm going to make this short because you really can't compete with these stories that you heard today. I own a defense company, like Tim said, and I've spent my entire adult life at war. I don't actually know anything different. I've been at war in South America, Africa, Bosnia, Afghanistan, Iraq. I've done 20 tours since um, 2001 um, to Iraq and Afghanistan alone with special operations and in the intelligence community. Shorter than, you know, the tours that you've been on and you've been on, but, you know, my life's changed a ton. I've been married, divorced, have a child, had my own problems. I know I, I went there a different person, came back somebody else. And, you know, I can relate to everything that goes on here. And I'm really grateful to the members of Congress that are my good friends, you know, Duncan and Tim, Brett, and so many others that have really helped us make this organization what it is. Duncan's dad and Jimmy Saxton started this organization and both sat me down for breakfast one day and they, they did it before 9-11 and they said, how would you like to run this show? And I was like, right, between going to war and running my defense company, when do you think I have time to do it? You know, and they told me, well, if anybody can do this, you can, because you work crazy, I don't know how you do what you do, you work remotely, you can't figure this thing out. We need somebody who's going to plug the holes where the government cannot. We need to know what the heck's going on, and that's what these guys wanted. They wanted to know how can we help at the hospital, how can we change things, how can we, how can we move some mountains, because we're going to have to move them pretty quickly. When we started to see our wounded guys coming into the hospital, our military medicine hadn't changed a lot as far as our rules and regulations to help our families out since Vietnam. No, our medicine is top-notch, but the regulations weren't. We were charging people $8 a day for food. And it's a guy on a feeding tube who just risked his life for us. Now, the rest of us would say, if we could walk out of a hospital with an $8 a day bill, that would be awesome, you know? But not when somebody served our country and, and put their life on the line for us. We've made so many changes like that. We've made a lot of allowances for families. We've had to literally make mountains move to make sure that we had the appropriate channels in place to make sure that Congress could put funding where it needed to. And I have to say one of the things that I'm most excited about, as much as we've got a lot of people hating everybody on this hill like I've never seen before, the one thing that everybody does seem to agree on is how can we help our troops, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. And that's something that makes me very proud, that we can put all of our differences aside when it comes to this issue. And everybody wants to know how can we do it better. So I appreciate all you members who are here and have helped us get better all the time. And I know that we're gonna to continue to do more things to help our veterans. I got a call from one of the friends of, of Jeff's son, just days before he committed suicide, calling me and said, I have a friend who's in really bad trouble. He's going to rehab and I think that he knew that 
something was way wrong and asked, what can we do to help out? And I said, what do you need? What do they need? And he said, I don't know, let me get back to you. And then he called me back and said, well, he's going, he's going to a rehab facility because we put a lot of veterans into rehab facilities. If we can't get their substance abuse and addictions under control, they can't even deal with the PTSD issues. We've got to do that first. And I, ha I have so many phone calls that come in, unfortunately, from service members and their families saying, please help me because I've gone to the VA. My husband's tried to commit suicide and they tell him his case isn't severe enough. You know, and I was sick and tired of the Atlanta VA. I am on, on their most wanted, hated list. They've got my picture at the front door because I hate them. I hate them. I hate them because I get so many phone calls from Atlanta area from veterans who tried to commit suicide a couple of times and then they're being denied because they aren't severe enough. And I keep asking, at what point is it a severe enough case that you're actually going to take them in for 10, 10 days of inpatient therapy? But if you can't do it, I will. And thanks for, for all of you guys, and I know there's a lot of corporations who've supported the Armed Forces Foundation throughout the years, and we need your help, but this is what the money's going for. It's for those phone calls that I'm receiving of, I need to put my friend in rehab and he needs a bed today. You know, in talking to Joey Jones, I play back that, that conversation too of, maybe I didn't move fast enough and I feel horrible. I remember when he called me and said, it's too late on a Saturday morning. I was in Kentucky at the Speedway with Kurt, and he said, we lost him. He committed suicide yesterday. And I felt horrible because just three days before, he called me and said, let's come up with a plan, let's do something. And it just kills me to know when we lose somebody that we could have saved. One veteran every 65 minutes is committing suicide. When I gave speeches last year, it was one veteran every 80 minutes. We are going the wrong way. On your table, you see these folders we put together for you, and it's our Help Save Our Troops campaign, and we want everybody to join in and spread the word, because it's not give these guys a 1-800 number that's gonna fix things. If you feel like committing suicide, here's a 1-800 number, just call, they'll fix it for you. That's not it. It's, it's making opportunities for these guys to get together, and talk. It's for them to work things out. It's for getting new technologies at the hospital that we've put in there, sleep monitors, whatever the doctors ask me for, I get it for them. Whatever they think that this ne next thing will help out, whatever kind of therapy it is, we're interested in it. And that's what our foundation's about. It's about helping these service members, but also helping their family members too. Don't forget, there's a wife suffering, there's children suffering. And our programs help take care of these families to make sure that they're also being cared for. Because if it isn't for a rock like April Deeds, who sticks it out no matter what? Who knows that if she leaves, that she may be her husband's only savior. That is a lot of responsibility for these family members. And they need our support just as much too. She is an incredible person. I have to tell you one quick story. I was sitting on the, on the pit box during a race, watching Kurt race and tweeting out what's going on to keep from my nerves being crazy. And I wish he could have been here today because he's a big part of what we do. But I got a, a really strange tweet that I just felt is just one of those weird tweets, just like the weird phone call that I'd gotten that day from Joey Jones. And it was a woman who said, thank you so much for all that you do to bring awareness to this issue. My husband's in really big trouble 
but I just can't thank you enough for driving awareness. I'm like, oh, driving awareness is not a big deal, but this is a, just feels weird. So I direct message her and said, what's going on? Little did I know she was locked up in her bedroom at that very moment with her two children and her husband was outside trying to get run over, trying to commit suicide at that moment when she's sending me a message to thank me for driving awareness because nobody else is listening. Luckily, he didn't succeed. And I got her phone number and during the race, I'm calling people, calling my great staff who never sleeps and saying, we need to, we need to get them some help. We needed to, to actually get this veteran who was out of the system and could not get help at the VA. They kept refusing him, and he had he's another one of my tried to commit suicide twice and couldn't get in. And we got him on an airplane, got him here to Bethesda Naval Hospital to Walter Reed, and got him an inpatient therapy through, thank God, some of our members here who can pull some strings, and we managed to get him in and get some help that he needed. But we also got his wife the help that she needed. They also had their car stuck at the repair shop. He could no longer get to work. He couldn't provide for his family. Things have gotten so bad now that they couldn't pay that bill to get that car out so he could go to work. He just felt completely hopeless. Well, you know what? At the end of the day, that's a little thing that we can solve, and that's something our foundation's always done. We've, we've given grants to these families to help get them out of the financial trouble, and through their financial troubles when we discovered what the real problems are, because it's not just paying that bill the one time. It's how are we going to set them up for success for life for the rest of their lives. But we got that car out of Hawk. He's able to go to work. She's able to get her kids around. And life's a little bit better. It's not perfect, but it's a little bit better. But it's because of the donations of so many of you great corporations that believe in our cause. And I can't thank you enough in being here for 9-11 today and being a part of not such a happy subject, but listening to these families and see what they've gone through and help us save more of our troops and our families. Thanks again for having me.